Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 8. Like I said, when I'm going to preach over the series, I'm going to read most of this text most of the time. In, uh, in the Old Testament, they used to, if you look at Ezra and you look at all those other uh, texts where they sat and they just read the scriptures over the people. And so I think so often we, we, when we preach, we talk about the scriptures and we don't necessarily read them uh, because we've got to listen and we've got to see what God's saying. But I believe that there's an intrinsic power in the word being spoken straight from the scriptures. So Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but who walk according to the spirit. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. I want you to stop there for a moment. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, do you believe that this morning? If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, let me try that again. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray and what we ought to pray, but the Spirit Himself, notice it's the Spirit Himself, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. In order that we might, or he might, be the firstborn among the brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So I want to remind you where we've been. In the first session, I talked about the fact that we need to walk with the Spirit. And so put a thing together that why don't we start literally walking with God on a daily basis, or at least for 60 minutes a week. And so we came up with the Dead Man Walking 10-Week Challenge. Why 10 weeks? Because it ends on Christmas. I mean Christmas, (laughs) Easter. Well, Easter is really our Christmas. But the point is, is that when we walk, we hear what the Spirit is saying, and we're led by Him. We surrender ourselves to what He wants of us, and we walk according to His purpose. And there's this consciousness of knowing that the, the Spirit of God's around us. I would, I would love to put uh, Glenn on the spot right now, but I'm pretty sure in, in, the, in the interview, God, I want to be conscious of what you want me to say right now. And maybe the Spirit constrains you in an interview or whatever it might be to keep quiet. Or maybe you're speaking to someone to tell them about Jesus. And you're either constrained or He gives you the words to say. We need to be conscious of the Spirit in us and leading us. And then Ian shared last week on the nature of who the Holy Spirit is. He's a person and what He does and how He does it. And I love to, I'm going to quote him on two lines. One is that the language of the Spirit is the language of sonship, not of being a slave. And lastly, that the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. 
So I want to focus on verse 9 and verse 26 to 30, which I've just read. More specifically, I've summarized it for you. If the Spirit of God dwells in us and empowers us in our weakness and works all good or all things good for those who are called according to His purpose. And from what I'm gleaning from the Scriptures there, is that the purpose that we are called to is to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Ultimately, we are glorified in God. Silence. What does this mean? I agree with you. What does this mean? I've mentioned it a couple of times over the last little while, that it was highlighted to me that there are different ways that we can study the Bible. And there's a systematic approach which has probably been used predominantly over the last number of decades. What is a systematic approach? Well, it's called systematic theology, and it just sounds like a big word for what it's describing up there, which really is about this whole thing of a type of Christian theology where you formulate rational and coherent accounts of our Christian faith by going to each particular text and pulling out the doctrines one by one and categorizing them into specific topics. Okay, Gary, what does that mean? Well, Let's say you wanted to know, what, what are angels? I mean, it's quite an interesting topic, and some people don't believe angels are around anymore, or whatever the case is. But, okay, let's look at angels. Let's go to all the texts from Genesis chapter 1, all the way through to Revelation 22, and let's find out what the Bible says in each one of those things. Let's collate it, and let's bring what we think angels are. And then you land up with, I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it, but angel, angelology. And maybe it's on soteriology. Or maybe it's on you know, some kind of Christology on Jesus. Whatever it might be. Or theology, which actually means theos, the Greek word for God. Logos, meaning knowledge. The, the word, meaning the knowledge of God. The word of God. Very systematic. It's how much of the Reformed guys would go through it. That's why you've got the systematic books from Grudem and Erickson and all of those things. And when you try to read them, they scramble your brain. But try it out. Here's the, the challenge with that, and I'm saying it's good. Not saying it's bad, it's very good that we do that. But here's the problem, and I'm going to try and ex- explain it in an analogy. Okay, there are five cities up there in the pictures there's Rio de Janeiro, there's Atlanta, there is Abidjan in uh, the Ivory Coast, there is Johannesburg, and there is Kabul in Afghanistan. Now, if I say to you, I want you to come and give me a picture of the whole world, and you went systematically about it, and I've just given five, obviously, you could go to many. But let's say we went to each of these cities to work out what the world looks like. What is the shortcoming in this approach? Each one has its own context. I mean, Kabul is war-ridden. It's, it's arid. It's dry compared to Rio, which is by the coast and just is magnificent scenery. To Johannesburg, the promised land, where you can see the glory of God rising over her. Thank you. To Atlanta, to the golf course in Atlanta, to even Abidjan, which is one of the most prettiest African cities that I've been to. Just the byways and the the coastal. Now, you can come up with an idea of what the world looks like, but you're not really going to get a picture of it, are you? You're going to have contextual understanding of each little city, but really not know what the world is about. What often happens then is what theologians do is they take all these little bits and pieces of Scripture, and they try and put it together like I've done now and say that's what the world looks like. And the problem with that is you take humanistic, logical leaps in our intellect to make things that we can understand these things. And what it does is it puts away the mystery of God because there is a mystery of God. 
And that, for me, is my challenge on Reformed theology. I am predominantly a Reformed theologian for myself. But the problem with some of those things, which Calvin and Luther and all those guys put together, is it pushes away the mystery of God. And it says the Holy Spirit isn't for now. And so now what we do is we just go from day to day without the empowerment of what God actually has for us. So, what should we do on top of, in addition to, it's the and, it's not the or, is what I call biblical theology. Well, not what I call it, but what they call biblical theology. And what this is, it's an unfolding of the revelation of God. It's to understand that the revelation of God that unfolds through history. So you start at Genesis chapter 1, and you look how God, for example, let's take angels. Where did God talk about angels? What did he say about them? And as he unfolds that revelation throughout the scriptures, we start to see the big picture of what God has for us and the context of how angels fit into the big picture. And so what we land up with is more something like that, where we start to see the world. We start to see the ice caps and the, uh, the, the continents. And over time, we would have seen that there was continental drift, that they all used to be part of the same thing and how they developed into the continents that we have right now. And then, yes, we can have the systematic approach where we go to Abidjan, where we go to Johannesburg, and we start to delve into it. So when you take those, these two together, you get the amazing picture of what God has destined and purposed for us in the Scriptures. So what I want to do this morning, I want to take you on a journey of biblical theology around the dwelling place of God. If the Holy Spirit dwells in us, then what I want to do, I've used the word stratosphere, maybe overarching, whatever word you want to do, but I want to take you up to have a look at earth as it were. I want to take you up and look at a biblical theology of God's dwelling place. What was God's intention? What was God's purpose? And how come God now lives in us? And what is the future? What does that look like at the consummation of this age? And I'm hoping that when you understand this overriding purpose of what God has done, that you will be able to live out your individual purpose with passion and with exuberance, knowing that God has you and has got your back. So those, this is what I'm hoping to answer. I'm hoping to answer that if God lives in you through the Holy Spirit, why is that the case? What does that mean for you right now? And going forward, what does that mean for our future? The first dwelling place of God mentioned for man was Eden. The Garden of Eden in, in, in particular. It was a place of satisfaction and life. Each one of you has a longing. Many of you have a longing for relationship. But let me tell you, it's going to get frustrated in conflict. Many of you have this longing for satisfaction. But I guarantee you, it's going to be frustrated in the discontent that you feel. Many of you have a longing for significance and it's going to be frustrated with your insecurities and your inadequacies. Eden was not a place like that. Eden was a place of satisfaction and contentment. Even J.R. Tolkien says the following, We long for our Eden, and we're constantly glimpsing it. We see these glimpses of it. Our whole nature, at its best and at its least corrupted, its gentleness and most humane, is still soaked with a sense of exile. Because God created this dwelling place for humanity to dwell with him. And we messed it up. So what actually happens in this process? Because the dwelling place of God is, when you look at the scriptures, is the temple of God, the place in which we worship and the place in which we move and have our being and are empowered to go out. And I want to show you this process of how it works. So God creates Adam and Eve in his image, petrol and diesel, as Paul said. And he creates them to be his image bearers to go into the world. 
Anthony shared in, uh, in uh, December, as a forerunner prophetically, we hadn't talked, talking about the fact that you had this place called Eden, and God said, now go and have dominion over the whole earth. But here was this little Eden. Why the whole earth? Because Adam and Eve were supposed to take the image of God and actually expand it into the rest of the world. That is the main purpose of man, is to take the glory of God, the image of God, His presence, and expand it as a witness out into the world. Well, we now kind of know what happened, because instead of reflecting and representing God and His presence, that didn't happen, and they sinned, and they allowed the serpent to come in and to defile the temple, and so they were then asked to leave, and we've been through that before, and I'm not going to go. Now, what I want to show you is my own little journey on this. All right, so we have the Garden of Eden. Now, actually, the garden was a much bigger place, and, and Eden, was, well, sorry, Eden was a much bigger place, and there was a garden within Eden. And then you had the land of Nod, which Ian spoke of last week, when, where Cain goes, and I'll explain that in a moment. And you've got the rest of the world. Inside the middle, the garden, the midst, the middle, you've got the tree of life, and you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What you have there is the word of God. What is the word of God? The big yes. Come and eat of all of this, but don't eat of that one. The big yes and the little no. The word of God, follow that. If you don't follow that, you will surely die. You won't have satisfaction in life that Eden has always been the purpose of. And so you have this full garden where Adam and Eve were now supposed to tend the garden through prayer, through presence and worship, conversation with God, walking with God, His presence, and surrendering themselves to God. The idea, though, was to extend that into the whole land of Eden and to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the whole earth. Okay, everybody with me so far? Why do I know this? Well, Psalm 8 verse 1 says, Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands to put everything under their feet and then to have dominion over the whole earth. So Adam failed in his quest to do this. So what God says is, okay, what do I need to do is I've I've now had to take you out of here. I've put you into Eden. Cain then kills his brother Abel and then goes to the land of Nod and everything starts to fall apart. And we land up in Genesis chapter 11 where now sin has corrupted the whole earth. Yes, we had Noah, but now it's gone back to where it was. The Tower of Babel has just happened. Man's doing his own thing. And in the midst of that, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man Abraham. And he says, through you and through your descendants, I'm going to pour my image and my likeness into you so that you can now go into the whole earth through the multitudes of your descendants to express my presence and my glory to the ends of the earth. Again, the same purpose. And so we start to see that happening. And you start to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob starting to do that. And then they get stuck in Egypt after Joseph gets them there, saves the whole nation. The nation grows the Egyptians start to dominate them, God comes and saves them. God brings them out of Egypt. What's the first thing he does? Go read it in uh, Exodus. He says, go and build my... He says, actually, well, let me read you the text. It's uh, Exodus 25. He says, get them to make me a sanctuary for me and I will come and dwell with them. And for five chapters, he describes with intricate detail what this thing needs to look like. I've always pondered and wondered at that. And in fact, when people like me now are preaching it, I'm thinking, Gary, what are you talking about? What purpose is the tabernacle and the temple and all of those good things? I mean, great, it's nice, but what does it mean for me now? What does it mean for our future? 
And I'm hopefully going to answer some of those questions. And so what starts to happen is the tabernacle is built. And you will read there that the minute they finish the tabernacle, God's presence comes. And you'll see the same thing in 2 Kings. When they finish the temple, God's presence comes. And what you will see here, and I'll describe to you, this is the outer court. This is the burnt offering places where what God is saying now is, I had to take you out of Eden. God followed them out. Now what happens is he says, I want to come and dwell with my people, but there's sin. So he provides a way for sacrifices and for washing so that people can now have his presence dwell among them because that has been taken care of. And there's the priest slucking all the animals. And inside here, and let me show you what that looks like. Inside here is the holy place and the holy of holies. So this process starts to unfold. It looks very similar to what I've just had in terms of the Garden of Eden. Is that what we have is God's presence, which is here. Guess what's in there? It's the word of God. The Ten Commandments. In God's presence, the Ten Commandments is not the law that everyone kind of thinks it is in terms of some of the scriptures that people make it out to be. The law is a declaration. It's perfect, and it's a declaration of God's character. So when we operate from this place, then what happens? We are priests, and through prayer, presence, and worship. Why? Because we have the bread. That's what you guys are doing right now. That bread was put fresh bread out every week. Hopefully you, when you come to Lifehouse on a Sunday, you receive fresh bread that is ministered to you on a weekly basis. Then the lampstand, which talks about the creator. It's actually the reason why it's like that is because it depicts the tree of life. Do we come and surrender to the creator of this world who brings light into this world? And then we, do we become the light as Jesus tells us to go out into the world? And then prayer, which is so important over here, where Jesus says when he comes and smashes the temple, this is supposed to be a house of prayer not a den of robbers. When what happens is, is in the outer court here, we have the washing, the offering I've spoken about, but there's a witness of God that the Israelites were supposed to expand into the rest of the world, into the rest of the nations. Coming from the place of God's glory. If you missed what Paul Eliot said earlier, you will end up trying to perform and drive yourself to be transformed. The only way we can be transformed is to be here. In God's presence, to be transformed by the one who transforms us, not by the things we do that he has asked us to do. Does that make sense? All right. Then you have Solomon's temple. So now what happens is, is they finally get their city, Jerusalem, everything sorted. And he actually says to David, and you can go read it in 2 Samuel, he says, you know, I've been kind of housed in tents ever since uh, it, it began. I, I really would like a building. So David says, cool, I'll do that. But he can't do it because God says, listen, there's blood on your hands. You've committed adultery and you've murdered. I can't have you do that, but your son can. Solomon builds a temple. And like I said, go read in 2 Kings. The minute they put that last thing into place, I don't know what it was, a tile, God's presence falls on the place in a mighty way. And it was majestic. It was unbelievable. But guess what happens? The same thing that happened in Eden. Man sins. Man doesn't do what he's supposed to do. God's presence leaves the temple. The Babylonians come and destroy the temple, destroy all of what's happening. And they are, the people are exiled away from Jerusalem. Now you have all the prophets in the Bible that talk about the temple being restored and the latter and the greater and the former and the whatever. Really, they're talking about the ultimate temple, which we'll see in Revelation in a moment. So here is what happens. Well, not there yet. I've rushed, I've rushed the process. I will get there in a second. So, 
Then what happens is, is the exiles come back to Jerusalem, Nehemiah, Ezra, and they rebuild the temple in the form that it was. That was the form that Jesus now comes into. And like I said to you, Jesus comes in and he says, for goodness sake, what are you doing? Plats a whip, he smashes everyone, takes the tables, turns them over. Why? Look at the next text after that. He goes and curses the fig tree for being, not being fruitful. So Israel was supposed to be a nation of people carrying God's image who were supposed to witness to all the nations and bring them into his presence. They became parochial. They kept themselves to themselves. And they, even in the outer court, they allowed the Gentiles to come and trade so they could make money off them. What a great way to influence the world for Jesus. Or for God in that case. So Jesus comes and says, listen guys, I will destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. And they go, oh, sure. You know how long it took us to build that thing? What he was saying was the dispensation of the temple that you see now is going to be done away with and my body is going to become that temple. And if you go and read in Hebrews chapter 10, it tells you that it's his body, his exact body, death, burial, and resurrection, which now becomes the temple. Then what happens is it says in uh, John chapter 7 verse 30, whoever believes in these scriptures, living waters will flow out of them. So now you've got the, cent the, the centurion and you've got all of these Gentiles who now come to know the Lord, who now start to come that know that when these living waters start to flow, when you look at Genesis and you see Eden and you see all the, the rivers flowing to the east, into the land of Nod and into the world, the living waters flow out of us as believers. As we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and implants himself in us and dwells within us and the living waters start to come out of us. Do we believe that? Or is that just something in the text where we go, oh, whatever. But as individuals, if we look at this, if the word of God is in our hearts, and our mind and through our bodies, we are in prayer and presence and the worship of God, and we serve sacrificially both the church and both the world, what starts to happen is rivers start to flow out into the rest of the world because our witness is displaying the image of God, and it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And then as the church, because remember, yes, individually we are filled with the church, but we are living stones being built as a dwelling place for God, as it says in Peter. And so what happens now is you have the word of God. And right now, we just, we're sharing the word of God. We are gathering. There's a corporate anointing. You can't experience what you did right now at home. I promise you, you can't. Can you experience God? Of course you can. But in terms of that corporate anointing, there's something, that's why in Hebrews 10 verse 25, do not neglect the gathering of the saints that some are in the habit of doing. Why? Because we need this. Because you need to be serving in the church. You need to be serving in the context of where you find yourself, your family, your workplace, your city, South Africa, the world. We are called to have that expanding, be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion as the rivers of living water flow in and through us as individuals, corporately as a, as a community, and corporately as the church into the world. Because we carry the image and the likeness of God that Christ has come through the Holy Spirit to renew a new spirit within us. As we are in His presence, as we are conscious and we walk and we are led by the Spirit, we start to expand the witness of God into the nations. Does that not excite you? It excites me. I know it's hot. But there's not very many excited faces out there. Right, let me bring this to a close. Ultimately, where we are going, if you read Revelation 21 and 22, let me read an excerpt for you. I did not see a temple in the city. This is Revelation 21, 22. Because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
The city does not need a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day are the gates shut. There will be no night, because there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we have this new heaven and this new earth that are coming, where there is no more tears, where there is no more sickness, where the temple really doesn't exist because God himself is our temple. He is our light. There will be no sun, but there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And what starts to happen in this process is when I ask you these questions, is if the Spirit of God dwells in us, then understand that you are image bearers of Jesus. That God has called not for you to stay in the Holy of Holies. It's great to experience what we do this morning. But this is half time. Remember when we played soccer in primary school? What did you get at half time? You got the oranges and the juice and you got back on the field. We go back on the field tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen. Why? Because wherever you move and have your being, you are taking the witness of Christ because you've been in his presence corporately, hopefully individually throughout the week. And what you are doing is you are declaring the image and the witness of God to the ends of the earth, which will culminate in what you just saw, the new heaven and the new earth. Why? Because everything walks, works for the good according to those who have called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? To be in the image of Jesus and allow his glory to shine in and through us. Here's the cracker out of all of this. If I had to go back, even in our prayer, we just read, it's the Spirit himself who helps us in our weakness to pray. All we have to do actually is surrender and worship. The presence of God is there. The revelation comes from his word, which is the fresh bread to you individually and corporately, hopefully on a Sunday. And so within all of this, there is provision all the way through that despite the sinfulness of humanity, God has provided Jesus, who is the burnt offering, the washing of our sins away, that we can coexist together and be the witness and the image of Christ to the ends of the earth. And yet he does that all within us in the power of the Spirit that was within us. And so we don't have to constipate this moment. It's about being in his presence, becoming who we already are in his presence, and going out into the world. And even when we don't know what to pray, in our weakness, the Spirit will pray the things that we don't know what to pray for. That's the amazing thing. And so with all of this, we are part of the story. You and me are part of this meta-narrative right now, right here, which is in the story, and there's still the consummation that's coming. We can be a big part of the story, or we can sit back, and we can soak in his presence, which is wonderful, but actually God's called us to step out and be the witness of his image to the ends of the earth. So all we need to do, ultimately, is actually push enter. Get involved with the story. Understand consciously that the Spirit is within you. You walk with Him every day, whether you're in an interview, whether you're in your job environment, whether you're in a conflict situation, whether you're discontent. Hopefully you can remember that key. Push the narrative. I'm part of God's story. What is God wanting of this moment as I walk into the future and display His image and His presence and the witness of Him into this world? Amen.